You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey guys, Daniel here. Um, just wanted to let you know in advance that during this podcast, me and Sean talk about Ben Simmons and his injury from the Wizards game, where at the time of our recording, all we what we knew from Shams Charania's report was that the MRI came back clean and that he was going to be day-to-day, but news has since come out that he suffered suffered a subluxation, sorry if I butchered that pronouncement, of the left kneecap, and that it's it's not looking as good. He seems to be out indefinitely. There could be a chance his season may be over. We're not sure, but if you're wondering why me and Sean do not talk with, about Ben's injury with the same severity as you probably all are expecting now, that's why. Uh, enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Talking About Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Olinger, and joining me, as always, always meaning only our second podcast, it's Sean Kennedy. Forever and always, Daniel. Fingers crossed this will be a a long-time endeavor for us here. You know, it's only been two podcasts, Sean, but I feel like we already have that bond. I mean, it's everyone at Liberty Ballers has that familial bond. Like, we could have a Thanksgiving dinner with each other and... You know, we might want to slap each other and yell it profusely, but... That's just normal family stuff, man. That is just normal family stuff. I mean, I don't get how other people don't understand that. Yeah, so the not a great start for the Shake Milton in the starting lineup uh, experiment or move as uh, he went scoreless in that first game and him and Embiid got into that heated argument on the sideline but you know shake bounced back he hit the game winner against san antonio and he had a good game uh yesterday against washington so everything's looking up except for uh one benjamin simmons no although we did get good news today that ben simmons mri from the game after the game last night against the wizards where he came up with that kind of scary non-contact knee injury the mri has come back clean he is listed as day-to-day Again, this is the Sixers medical staff, so, you know, whatever you want to believe or think about that is up to you. I, I mean, would you guess that they probably rest him the rest of the regular season games? I would say they'll maybe – I mean, it all depends on his health, obviously, but they would want to get him more acclimated into that off-ball role, I would think. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it would be a situation where they just rest him for the sake of resting him. Obviously, if he's not 100%, they should absolutely sit him. But if there's, if he's fully healthy and everyone deems him ready to go, then I would think they would want to get him out there for one or two games before the playoffs start. Just because with Shake in the lineup um, and Ben moving to that power forward a little bit more, he hasn't had a lot of time with that group. And they would want him to, you know, get a little more comfortable there. So I think it would be beneficial to maybe against the Rockets in that last seeding game, get him in there and get him uh, back out there because it's not like it's a first round series that they're going to be able to coast and kind of work things out there. They're going to have a tough series that it's probably a coin flip, whether they even win it. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, we'll see. It all depends on his health, obviously. Well, based on this last week, I don't even know if they could claim like a coin flip chance. Like it's like honestly looking 40, 60. I mean, they are two and one through three games somehow. And I mean, they just do not look good. It, it, there's just no other way to say it. The three teams they have played, a Spurs team that, despite being revamped without LaMarcus Aldridge, having more spacing, playing that three guard lineup, and being, playing pretty well so far, like you, that game should not come down to Shake Milton hitting an insane shot to win the game for you. The Wizards, by far the worst team in the bubble pushing the Sixers all the way to the end where the Sixers just couldn't shake them the whole game. And then 
of course, the Pacers-TJ Warren explosion to get things started. So it's just been a really they, – they just do not look good. And this is well, – we're going to get right into this here. So if you haven't listened to the Gastroenteritis Blues podcast, I highly suggest you go listen to that with Dan, Emily, and Steve. It was really good this week, a great debut episode. They did something where they talked about their five most attractive Sixers just by, like, general looks. And I thought we could kind of play off that and not most attract – and not actually about looks, but how the Sixers look on the court. And we're going to rank our five most unattractive things the Sixers do, especially within this last week of very painful games. All right, yeah. Uh, so you, you want me to dive in my first? So do we want to go like ranking them like because I, I put them in ranks and like went fifth to we could go like fifth to first. I don't have a real order. So I mean, yeah, OK, then you just you can should probably just fire off your first one. All right. So my first one's kind of it's kind of more funny than ugly, but it does look ugly. And that's Joel Embiid's pump fake. <laughs> it, it is so slow and so clunky looking. And he himself has laughed about it, just saying, I don't know how defenders continue to fall for this, but they do. And it kind of works, so I can't really hate on it too much. But my goodness, it is an ugly-looking pump fake. And I agree, I don't know how anyone ever falls for it. Zach Lowe has a classic line where he said on so many podcasts where he would find his centers thousands of dollars every time they fell for a Joel Embiid pump fake from like the three-point line. because. It's just the basic idea that if Joel Embiid is shooting a three when you're guarding him one-on-one, you've won that matchup no matter what happens from there because anytime he does not have the ball at the rim and is putting you like just through the basket, it's a victory. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure how teams fall for it. I get, it's probably just the same thing that if a guy who is that good and that dangerous like kind of – you're so probably amped up to guard him. He makes any movement, you're trying to react to it. So it's probably something along the lines of that. And quick tangent off here, like Joel Embiid has been the one thing that has not been painful or unattractive to watch about the Sixers. I mean, you could probably argue Tobias Harris too has been playing pretty well, but it's been a really great week for Embiid, if not even though it hasn't been for the Sixers as a whole. Sure, he's been the most dominant player on the court. And aside from maybe DJ Warren. Um, but yeah, Tobias has been really consistent, which is great, but Embiid being that top-tier superstar and playing to that caliber through the first three games is very encouraging because as long as he's doing that, it can cover up for a lot of other mistakes and uh, poor play from the rest of the roster. So hopefully that continues, if uh, nothing else. Jackson Frank had a great tweet, which is basically the Sixers strategy through three games has been, we have Joel Embiid and you don't, but we can't play him for 48 minutes. Yeah. I thought it summed it up perfectly. It did. And that was true last season too. And they tried, they played him for <laughs> 43 minutes and uh, the five minutes when Greg Monroe was out there that, that doomed them. So I didn't even think it was five. I, I remember being like two and a half and he was still minus nine and that whole series the the Greg Monroe experiment is still one of the most frustrating things that I've ever experienced in my young life. Yeah, well, I feel like you lead a pretty blessed life then. <laughs> I've had some frustrating stuff as as a Sixers fan. Um, I don't I don't know where Greg Monroe ranks. It's it's not up there. I would say, um, but give it give it some more time, and I think you'll find some more frustrating stuff with the Sixers. But yeah, definitely uh, definitely wasn't a great situation. <laughs> So, All right. so, so here is my like first thing, and I, I guess this is kind of like my fifth most unattractive thing. So as uh, the descending order, like eventually I'll get to the thing that upsets me the most about watching them play, the thing that's the hardest to watch. So fifth, I had that I don't think they understand ball and man, like the idea of seeing ball and man in off-ball defense, which is something you're taught at a very basic level, in, like in youth basketball, something that was always really important to me. Like, if you watch all those pin downs that TJ Warren killed the Sixers on, Al Horford is just staring directly at him a lot of times. Or, or like, just – I don't know if you know what I'm saying, but it's, like, either they're completely focused on the guy who the action's being run for, and so they couldn't help off-ball if something else happens there. And then there's something, like, 
Matisse Thibel has this problem where I feel like whenever he's off ball, he'll get back cut a lot because he is always ball watching no matter where he is on the court. And he'll like completely turn his back to his man. Do you, do you, do you have you seen some of that when you've been watching them play? Yeah, I have. Uh, and I saw you kind of commented when I, I broke down that Pacers mm-hmm. fourth quarter uh, comeback against the Sixers. And I, I showed that play where Warren uh, had the back door cut along the baseline against Simmons and kind of faked like he was doing the pin down screen. And yeah, Horford and I think Josh Richardson were both kind of turned away from the ball watching Warren. And that was what allowed the pass to get underneath there. So it created the passing lane essentially. And yeah, they do that a lot. Um, and Matisse will, I think he'll learn with, yeah, with, I mean, with experience. He's just so prone to looking for those steals. I'm, and, a, I'm a little more upset at the 33-year-old making that mistake than the 22-year-old. Yeah, and hasn't he been – he's been like an all-team, all-NBA defender in the and, past. And you I, think? Al does it the most, but I don't think he's like – and like you said there like how – Ben got back cut like it's okay for the guy who if his specific job is to deny the ball which would be the case with TJ Warren's that hot it's okay to not see ball and man go into like a full face guard try to deny but you can't have like three guys with their backs turned to the ball at the same time you just look look at a team like the Toronto Raptors where second best defense in the league and their whole kind of they always help in on the middle they're always like rotating to the next guy whereas the Sixers it's like I feel like they should be able to multitask better on defense. They absolutely should. They have not. The defense has been very concerning uh, through the first few seeding games here. And it's just, and they're not a team that's going to outshoot the opposition a lot. So the defensive end was where they were supposed to, you know, make their hay. And in the playoffs, when everything kind of, tightens up on offense it's going to be even more of a struggle for them and they're going to need to get stops and that's how they're going to have to win games given both uh you know how the playoffs work and the composition of the roster and we haven't seen that yet so i mean hopefully that'll improve they've been a good defensive team in the past so maybe that'll just work itself out but um yeah not not an encouraging start to be sure no it is not uh sean what's your fourth most unattractive thing the sixers do all right, another one I had was Tobias Harris's proclivity to pass up an open three and then kind oh, of Oh, take... yes, thank you. <laughs> and then he, he's and then he takes a couple dribbles in and takes a, a lower percentage and more contested mid-range shot. Um, he does it all the time. It's frustrating. During the regular season, he's second on the team in mid-range attempts. At uh, he takes over three of them a game, and he only shoots them at thirty four point nine percent, which is uh, that's just a brutal percentage. So he shouldn't even be taking them. And just the fact that he takes them in favor of more open threes, which he does a lot, it's really frustrating. And he, it's it's weird because he's playing really well in a lot of a lot of areas. Um, I just wish he would kind of erase that part of his game and just kind of take the Houston Rocket mentality of threes and layups. I think it would serve him a lot better. Um, but, yeah, he definitely does that a lot. It, it It's a really ugly, frustrating habit for, for me as a viewer. I don't know. But I, I guess you feel the same way about it based on your reaction there. Yeah, so I, I keep a notebook where I write down everything when I'm watching games like and put little timestamps next to stuff in case I want to go back and clip that for something. I have written down so many times Tobias should take that three. Like, I have it written down, Toby should take the three right there, and he does not do it. You were absolutely right. And I think that's the Sixers as a whole. There's a lot of times where I'm like, these guys, they'll catch the ball, and they just need to shoot right away. Like, I think, I think I've seen him. I can't remember who did it yesterday, but there was another play like that where, like, someone catches, has a brief moment of space and just won't shoot it, then puts the ball on the crown, shoots from, like, 18 feet. You just need to, like, you do not space the floor just by shooting a good percentage. You actually need to be willing to shoot a lot and shoot some contested looks because your willingness to shoot forces a defense to bend more because they – even if you're a good shooter, if you like just refuse to shoot unless you were super wide open, the defense wouldn't be that worried about you because they thought they could probably recover to you. It's that willingness to always shoot, to always try and put that threat on the defense that kind of hurts them. So, no, you're definitely right. It wasn't in my five things, but definitely this Tobias Harris in particular passing up 
potential three pointers is something that bothers me. And my fourth, like most unattractive thing kind of involved that because it was just the Sixers finishing at the rim in general, more like just how awkward it looks, especially like Tobias is kind of good at it when in that like five to six foot range with those weird floaters. But the main one that bothers me is Ben Simmons, like trying to finish at the rim. Some of these games, he's been shooting with his right hand so much and he throws it like super high off the backboard. He never seems to get his steps right. Like if he tries the euros or anything like that, do you, do you know what I'm saying with that? Yeah. And we've, we talked about this, I, I think a little bit last week, just his, his struggles around the rim mm-hmm. and it, it, it hasn't fixed itself obviously. Um, but yeah, they, they aren't aside from Embiid, they don't have a lot of elite finishers on the interior. And that's just one of the many, reasons that offensively they can just go through such periods of uh dysfunction and just clunkiness overall no yeah and like Embiid's finishing at the rim is he's like he's just straight up powering through you the Sixers don't have anyone like just say a guy like De'Aaron Fox on the Kings will have a couple drives each game where he does some really tight dribble move and can just sidestep around someone get himself an easy layup at the rim like no problem the Sixers don't have anyone that like moves around people or like think a guy like Shea Gilgis Alexander just how he can kind of like duck around people the Sixers like it just feels like everyone drives straight in their into their like man's chest who's guarding them every time even yesterday former Sixer Ish Smith is a guy that he doesn't have you know the size obviously but he's super quick and he gets those little you know, savvy floaters or up and unders or finger rolls and just knows how to navigate around all those bigger limbs when he gets into the paint. And you're like, how did you not stop him? How did this little guy squeak through there and find any space? But he does. And that's a skill set. And it's, yeah, it's not something many of the Sixers, if any, really possess. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's your third thing? All right. So you dunked on Simmons a little bit. Um, I had one similarly. Uh, It's just his free throw shooting. It's yeah. it's awful. I mean, it's been talked about ad nauseum in the three years he's been here. Uh, he, to be fair, he's gotten better. He's gone from fifty six percent his rookie year to sixty percent, up to sixty two percent. But it still looks really clunky. It's not a smooth stroke, yeah. and not to be a Kevin O'Connor conspiracy theorist, but when you watch Ben Simmons shoot free throws, you're like, yeah, that does kind of look like a guy who's not shooting with his dominant hand. It, it looks like me when I try to shoot left-handed free throws. Like. Exactly, yeah. And it's it looks like a guy that decided to shoot with his offhand and practiced a lot at it. So he can do it pretty well, but it still looks like his offhand. Um, but yeah, it's, and I, I mean, small sample size, but in the three seeding games, he was three of six and then four of eight. So I'm glad he had been getting to the line a little bit, but you want him to shoot better than 50%. Um, so yeah, just remains ugly. So if I had to talk about things being ugly on the court for the Sixers, that's got to be one of them for me. Yeah, like that's one of those things where maybe not a bad, it doesn't hurt them that much, but it is really aesthetically displeasing. Um, my third thing was that they allow drivers into the lane like crazy. And I have a lot of stats on that that I wanted to talk about, but I think I'm going to save that for when we specifically dive in on the Sixers defense later in the pod. But yeah, like like you said, Ish Smith, it feels like smaller guards can get to the rim against the Sixers a lot, which is not fun to watch. It's not. It's been a problem, and it's been even worse recently because Josh Richardson oh. and Ben Simmons both kind of look lost offensively. So. Josh Richardson went from like good defense, having a good defensive season this year, to like he might be the worst defender on the team through the first three receiving games where I don't know what happened to him. Do you? I, I can't imagine. I don't know. It just him and Ben both were, and Ben was a little better before he got injured yesterday, but yeah, just what, yeah, exactly what happened. It's out of nowhere. That was kind of something you figured you could absolutely count on. Um, and you think defense would translate to, a longer layoff because that's more just effort and knowledge and nuances of the scheme. Whereas, you know, if someone started off shooting poorly, you might think, all right, well, they, you know, had a layoff. They weren't really getting their shots up and uh, it's a new gym with different sight lines and everything. So 
that could all be taken into account. But yeah, I don't I don't understand why the defense hasn't really traveled to Orlando. All right, Sean, what you got for number four? All right, so the young bull, Matisse Thibel, <laughs> um, just everything involving him handling the ball. And uh, I mean, he can it, he can kind of pass a little bit after one dribble, but once he he has the Danny Green thing where once he takes two dribbles, he's going to lose the ball. Exactly. So yeah, he he sometimes makes good decisions, and I think he knows the right thing to do in a lot of cases, but. Yeah, if he, if he tries to do too much, it's like a like a deer on ice kind of look to it. And, um, you know, he's a rookie, so I'm, I'm not going to, like, bash him for this. He's a rookie, and that isn't really his role. He's he's going to be a 3 and D guy, so he doesn't have to do that a lot. But just it'd be nice. Like, he got that steal yesterday against Washington. Really nice steal. Pick the guy's pocket, and then he's going down on the fast break. But instead of laying it up and, like, kind of drawing the contact and at least getting the foul, and it looked like he had a pretty clear path to the rim. He tried that behind the back pass to, to yeah. for trailing. The guy just picked it off. Uh, it just it just feels like whenever he has the ball in his hand, if if it's more than for a second or two, something weird happens. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's like I said, he's a rookie, so it, that, that'll most likely improve in the future. But right now, it, it's pretty ugly. No, yeah, I I understand what you're saying with that. I didn't put it in my top five because. I mean, I was thinking about some more high-volume stuff. Like, we don't see Matisse – like, that happens, but it doesn't happen that much just because Matisse doesn't dribble that much. So Exactly. So, I, yeah. like I'm kind of spared from it. Right. Yeah, it's just something that when it does happen, it really jumps out at you. Mm-hmm. So, my second most unattractive thing the Sixers do is something I wrote about earlier this week, which is when they run these pick-and-rolls – and, rolls, and they, it happened a lot in the one scrimmage, but just generally their spacing and – when they would run pick and rolls, sending a third man into the paint as the pick and roll was happening. And it's just like, you watch it and you're like, this is why like people say we should be firing Brett Brown or stuff like that. Because when it's just, that's kind of like systemic flaw. You're like, how does that happen? How do you specifically draw another defender in to clog the roll man's path right as the pick and roll was happening? How are these guys... Not do not have it drilled into them at this point that hey you shouldn't do that right when this is happening. It's awful, um, and you can read a great article about it on LibertyBallers.com. Yeah. <laughs> self plug, self plug. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, good, good, good job by you on that. Where you kind of went into that, and it's it's really confusing that they just don't know the simple act of spacing the floor and just let the pick and roll kind of work itself out and let the play develop before you kind of run into the fray and I don't I don't understand where it stems from I don't they're they're not being productive in in that area and as you mentioned if if that's not part of the scheme why isn't Brett like pulling a guy right away and saying why did you do that when yeah when when Jay Rich wanders down in there for no reason why does why does he not get subbed for like a minute and say hey you can't do that yeah exactly so yeah either way whether it's schematically or like teachable moment then that's something Brett should be fixing uh for sure so yeah it's you know I, I feel like Every time we talk about the Sixers offense, unless it's Joel Embiid, it's something ugly, it seems like. Um, so that's definitely a big part of it. Yeah, you don't need to look any further than a team like the Mavs or the Rockets who have a ton of guys spacing. Like, like I mean, the Rockets do not move off ball. Or they specifically, it's like they just don't move into the paint, keep it open so Harden and Westbrook can attack there, which makes sense. Like, you want to let your guy, like, like the Sixers, you wouldn't want to send another guy, a ton of people into the paint as Embiid's posting up. You want him to have that space. So it's like the same kind of thing. Yep. Uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like it should be that hard, mm-hmm. but it is for them. All right, uh, Sean, your last thing. Yeah, my last one. So it's very, very along the same lines that uh, you just mentioned, but, and it doesn't really happen as much because they don't play Ben, Al, and Joel together. Um, if, 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 that much at all, if if ever, but uh, it's three guys trying to post up all at once during the same possession, and there was there was one play where 
it's some early before the season got suspended, but where Al tried to post up and then he got pushed off four seconds later, Joel went down there and Ben was on the opposite block also trying to get post position. And oh, it's, wonderful. it was just, it's everything about the Sixers roster dysfunction in a nutshell. And we also had guys like when Mike Scott was getting minutes, he would try to post up sometimes and just like, Hey man, you're out there to space the floor. And then Tobias would do it. And that's another guy that, if you're in there with two guys who aren't going to shoot, you need to be spacing the floor, Tobias. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it would happen all the time, and it it was just emblematic of the overall uh, f- the fit problems that the team has. And that's probably uh, as ugly as it gets for the Sixers is when three guys try to post up at once. Yeah, that what you said there is kind of similar to what I just said before. Like, just in general, the spacing is just hard to watch when – you see how clogged it is in the paint, and you can see why it's a problem. It's just not fun to watch basketball when a ton of guys are standing in the same area just bumping into each other. Yep, and yeah, that also happens just when guys drive, and then they're not spacing the floor, and everyone collapses in. And we get those screenshots of everyone being below the foul line, um, and then everyone says, oh, well, why – why can't Joel do more here? And it's because there's four guys within five feet of him. I'm surprised we haven't started a Twitter account, like six or screenshots, which is just every like screenshot from the season of every guy in the paint. It, I think it would, it, this, it, I'm going to write this down. This could be a success. Yeah. If you, if you want to run a third Twitter account, Daniel, this, <laughs> this could be it. Six or spacing. And yeah. just nothing but screenshots. Oh man. Well, I got one last thing for us. And, it is just passing in general. The Sixers are so bad just at basic passes. Like the post entries and the high lows, they try to run. They can never seem to do it. And I get that it doesn't come off that way because Ben Simmons is a great transition passer. He throws good no looks to baseline cutters and kind of can kick out for three. But he's not like at the top of the key, like whipping it around, or if some guy helps off, he can find that little hole. But and he like Ben too struggled firing post entries. Josh Richardson in the Pacers game because the Pacers kept doing this thing where they were disrespecting the Sixers shooters so much they already helped off them before the pass to kind of double Embiid and before the and double Simmons sometimes before like the ball would even be there. Jay Rich would lob these passes so slowly that it just gave the Pacers so much time to get there. Time like he had no idea how to throw either a tight or like quick bounce pass instead just kept throwing these lollipops that were getting picked off. It just drives me crazy watching this team. And it's one of the reasons it's one of the only reasons I kind of haven't totally given up on Al Horford is I think at times he might be the team's best passer just because he like can kind of like, like you have that one good play in the game yesterday where they ran a pick and roll. Another guy helped off the come off immediately. He immediately whipped it back out to a shooter. Like, he can kind of do that stuff. He understands some of those passes, but it just feels like this team does not know how to pass. I understand Embiid as a post passer has gotten better. He's done better dealing with those doubles, but just in general, like I get so frustrated watching this team trying to pass sometimes. The Pacers game was just horrendous. Oh, it they, was so bad. They kept trying to run those Simmons elbow sets. And mm-hmm. yeah, Josh was the biggest culprit, but a lot of different guys just kept, yeah, just no you know, no pace on the pass. They were just lofting it up and it was in the air forever. And it gave Indiana plenty of time to get over and intercept it. And because they were trying to do entry passes at the elbow, once they intercepted it, it was like, all right, down there on the fast break. And then they have one guy to beat. And it just created all these um, odd man opportunities for Indiana and easy, easy buckets. And it was just so avoidable. Like just throw a simple pass it's mm-hmm. something you learn in middle school it's not that hard it wasn't complicated it was just it just looked really lazy and i i don't understand how it happened repeatedly and you know it wasn't corrected in game so i guess again that's an area where the the brett haters can point to and i can't really argue with them because it that's that's something a coach needs to correct in in game um and yeah i i would also agree about what you said about Al, he's, he's a very good, not only post-entry passer, but he also swings the ball yeah. perfectly. Um, he, he keeps it moving around the perimeter and he, and he's more willing than I think anyone else to make that 
that one extra pass. Um, like no one else really. I, I I don't I don't know about this specifically, but I would guess he gets a lot of hockey assists too, mm-hmm. just because he's, you know, he's willing to keep the ball moving. Um, and I, yeah, I think he had five assists yesterday against Washington. So it's definitely something he's been doing well in the seeding games. I mean, I think we could pick apart a few things he's doing wrong, but overall he's been he's been bringing some things to the table as well. So he's pretty far down on the list of reasons Sixers have not been playing well. Um, but yeah, it's I don't understand it. it. I know they don't have great passers, and that's maybe because they're starting a guy at point and shake Milton who might be a combo guard. Like really, yeah. If, if we're being guard. honest, yeah. He so just, he doesn't have the handles of a point guard, right? So they don't have they don't have the true point guard in the quintessential definition of the term. Um, so that's it starts there, and they don't even have they don't even have like the T.J. McConnell backup point guard type guy who's not spectacular but just Sean, is a steady ball handler. Sean, why did you have to remind me that we don't have TJ McConnell anymore? I was trying to I was trying to repress that part of my <laughs> mind. It, uh, it, it infuriates me every time I just think about how we could have still had him and he was so good for everything this team needed. Yeah. So. They yeah they need they definitely I mean Alec Burks has been doing a nice job as kind of coming off the bench recently, but he's more of the the microwave scorer type and he can, he can create a little bit, but they don't have that guy that's just going to run the offense um, and be, and I, I don't know. It's, it's definitely a deficiency on the roster. So uh, yeah, certainly uh, I can understand why that would be your ugliest thing to watch on the court for the Sixers. Well, enough talk about those ugly things. Now we're specifically going in on the Sixers defense, which has, I mean, they didn't give up. They did pretty well against the Wizards yesterday. But I mean, if you're holding the Bubble Wizards like to a a poor offensive game, that's nothing to write home about. The games against the Pacers and the Spurs, they gave up points per 100. They were giving up 123 and 125 points per 100, much worse than the Wizards' own worst defense in the league. 46 fourth quarter points to the Pacers, 43 to the Spurs. Sean, what is going on with the Sixers' defense? Well, their on-ball defenders are just getting beat over and over again. So that it kind of starts with with that, with Ben Simmons and Josh Richardson, you know, supposed to be the lockdown guys, and suddenly they're getting beat, and guys are getting into the lane. And aside from Joel Embiid being a good backline stopper, uh, they don't have any answer because, as we talked about earlier, guys aren't really doing ball you man they don't have their eyes on the ball if, if they're off ball a lot of times and uh it's just leading to a lot of easy buckets or some sometimes joel having to step up and then his man's open or just overall dysfunction where guys aren't making the correct rotations there's there's so many flaws in what's going on right now it, it's hard to just pinpoint if they'd fix this then it'd all be corrected but um yeah not what we expected and not what you want to see at all Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to talk about here, and like you, we, you mentioned it there, but and this was my third most unattractive thing, which I just said I would save for later, like allowing all those drivers into the lane. And I think there's a pretty good argument that it's a systemic problem. And if it's systemic, the system's being set in place by Brett Brown. So the best defenses in the league are the Bucks and the Raptors. And the Bucks, it's been well-documented this year, they allow the fewest percentages of attempts allowed at the rim in that like only 29.8% of opponents shots come at the rim and they give up like the most threes them and the Raptors. And I know the Raptors are like eighth in allowing shots at the rim, which when you hear that first, like someone who maybe doesn't follow basketball that closely, but knows that threes are really in style, like quote unquote, they'll probably think, Oh, they're giving up a ton of threes. That, that can't be good for your defense. Everyone says threes are the best. Well, it's more like threes and at the rim are the two most efficient things you can do. But still, scoring at the rim is pretty much the most efficient thing in basketball because you're going to get fouled a lot. It's where basically everyone should be the most accurate. Like that, you're going if a guy has an open shot at the rim, he'll make with like no one around him, he'll make it 99 times out of 100. So where's a three-pointer? What could that be, like 40 or 50 times out of 100? It's just the general idea that 
protecting the rim is probably more important. The Sixers are 17th in the league in shots allowed at the rim, 35.8%. So there are 16 teams that allow fewer percentage of shots at the rim than the Sixers. And I think, and look, I think that's a problem because they also, the Sixers are first in the league in allowing the lowest frequency of three-pointers. So the Sixers do take away a lot of threes, like 31.8%. It's docu- well-documented that Joel Embiid does a good job of forcing mid-range shot attempts in the pick-and-roll because, like, the on-ball defender will chase over and whoever the ball handler is doesn't want to attack JoJo. But I, th- I think that's a problem where the Sixers basically do not stop guys from getting into the lane and because it's really easy to get into the paint, to get into the lane against the Sixers, your offense is just going to be more efficient. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, that's that's you know that's just basic defense and, and offensive yeah. efficiency and how it works. And yeah, we've seen the the results of that where they're just getting beat repeatedly, and it's just high percentage looks for the opposition like time and time again. Um, but yeah, it's interesting you you bring up you know Milwaukee and Toronto. Um, so I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I would imagine just based on how the Spurs used to organize their defense and coach Bud being a part mm-hmm. of the Spurs cult- coaching tree that even if they allow a lot of threes, I wouldn't think they would allow a lot of corner threes. So I, I can, I don't have the specific percentage in front of me, but I know this for a fact, the bucks are big on not a lot of corner threes. The bucks basically force you to take a ton of above the break threes. Yeah, exactly. The, the Raptors have given up the largest percentage of corner three-point attempts in NBA history. Wow. It's not even close. But the Raptors, there's been a lot of good pieces on them lately. But it's basically because the Raptors are all about – they cl- like all kind of help off, you know, that more like seeing ball and man, help into the paint, kind of like staying connected to each other. And then they trust their athletes, especially Siakam. They, they, they're like scram switching to close out to shooters – and just get a contest up is like it's unbelievable where they are you can't believe the energy their defense has where they somehow like you never get it to the point where just no one is running at you still if you like they always have another guy who can come over there and run over and get to the shot in time to like at least be in the vicinity so and that kind of wears on the offense as they have to keep you know like passing around passing around but kind of like wears down the brain power like they only have 24 seconds they have to make a decision when to shoot eventually. So, and it's an interesting scheme. And like, that's part of the reason some people think the Raptors could get burned in the playoffs because they do give up a lot of corner threes. But I think it might just work where it's like the best thing you can do in basketball right now is just protect the rim. Yeah. And Toronto just has a lot of those guys that are long and switchable. And then even a shorter guy like Lowry, he's such an incredible post defender. Oh, Lowry, you cannot post up Lowry because he'll just, he'll either draw a charge or he'll, I mean, they let him get away with a ton of fouls, but he'll get away with it and move you off it. Like you can't, there's no one to attack on the Raptors. And part of the reason they keep the ball of the paint is that all five guys can keep in front of someone. Like you would never see Ish Smith just torching Lowry or Fred Van Vliet and just continually getting around him. They would always step in front of him. Yeah. Um, well, Kyle Lowry, another guy that a lot of Sixers fans were hoping he would trade for oh. and kind of bring in a few years ago. Um, and then uh, Fred Van Vliet, you know, obviously not a high draft pick. So he's the guy that uh, everybody in the league could have had, I think. So, yeah, the Toronto and um, Masai Jiri has done a tremendous job just building that roster. And just the fact that they're doing as well as they have, even with the finals MVP leaving this past off season, it's incredible. And uh, yeah, when we talk about the the teams in the Eastern Conference for our, our last segment here th- today, um, you know, we'll talk about how well Toronto's been playing. It's mm-hmm. it's not boating well for the Sixers is is how it all boils down to. An- another guard the Sixers could have had. Um, I can't remember which year the draft was, but the one draft where they traded up into the first round to take Anzish Pesechniks over Derek White, who I think was picked like of the next pick or two. Yeah, and Josh Hart. Ugh. Another guy that would fit perfectly. They, they would just like – I mean, do Sixers fans lead the league in complaining or bemoaning like 
guys they could have potentially had on their team. Do we think this is true? I mean, they, we complain a lot. Um, do. I do it myself. Um, <laughs> I'm obviously biased, uh, and of I'm I'm here in this in the Sixers uh, media bubble, so I, I can't like speak to every other fan base. But yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a pastime of ours. The the one that really bothers me is that just I I mean I brought it up already. T.J. McConnell would like if Ish Smith had been doing that in the first quarter. T.J. McConnell would have subbed in the game would have stopped him from doing that. When the Sixers couldn't get anything going on offense, he would have actually driven to the rim and done something. I just think the Sixers could really use a speedy point guard like that who can stop a guy similar to him on the other end and just kind of penetrate, attack the defense on the other for offense. Like, I am on the higher end of the Howell Meadow spectrum. I don't think he's terrible. I kind of like him somewhat. But he can't do that, really. I, I just don't think he has the – he doesn't have any of the scoring acumen to do that to really threaten the defense at all. But, yeah. I, I also I had some numbers here where I just, like, did some basic calculations, like taking away free throws, which is a big part of this, but just if you take the league average on three-point shots and basically, like, if a team shot league average on threes, that's 1.086 points per possession – if a team shoots league average on at the rim, it's 1.268 points per possession. So maybe it's like one of those things where the Sixers need to just completely change their strategy of, hey, it's okay to give up some of these threes. And like maybe use our size like the Bucks do with the Lopez twins and Giannis and just completely shut off everything at the rim. So these teams like are just forced to shoot jumpers all game. Cause like you saw in the Bucks Celtics game where Tatum just got rejected by Brooke Lopez every time he came near him. Well, they maybe maybe tried the allow teams to shoot threes against Indiana because they were sure letting T.J. Warren get a lot of threes up. <laughs> okay, there's different kinds of like that. And, like, I know the, the Bucks' whole thing is they try and make, like, not the best shooter shoot threes. And same thing with the Raptors where they wouldn't let Duncan Robinson get any space. It's like the Bucks will force, like, middling three-point percentage guys or guys who are not shooting that well. And you, and you, some, you know, you get burned with that sometimes, like, there's the one game earlier this year where the Bucks got burned by the Suns because Aaron Baines hit like seven threes. Like you have to ex- understand that a few of those things would happen, but I would rather have like the problem be once in a while, you're going to get killed by a team that's just shooting hot from three. than your problem be teams get to the rim at will against you. Sure. I understand. Uh, but you know, realistically, they're not going to make any mm-hmm. scheme changes at this point in the season. And, you know, plus Ben's injured right now, so he wouldn't even be able to, you know, work out with uh, the team when they're installing anything. Mm-hmm. And they're in the Orlando bubble where they don't even have their own practice court and there's such limited facilities for everybody um, that, yeah, they're, they're going to have to live or die with whatever they have in place right now and they're just going to have to do it better. Yeah, that's for right now. But, like, this is what one thing we need to touch on. Like, based on, like, the stuff we've talked about earlier, the defensive problems, like how much so far of these first three games has been an indictment on Brett Brown's coaching? And like, where are you leaning on the spectrum of should the Sixers get, start to be thinking about a new coach for next year? Well, I think they're already thinking about it. I mean, well, I'm not asking, do you think they should be? Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, if he doesn't make it to the conference finals, if the Sixers don't, then I, I don't think he's going to be back next year. I, I, I mean, it was, it's been a story for, you know, years now and they had talks about it in the, during the playoffs last year where management had to come out and, you know, kind of give their stamp of approval for Brett and just say like, Hey, we're confident in him. And that's when they were playing pretty well. So now that they haven't been playing well, they didn't meet expectations this season. Like they were, like we kind of forget now, but they were expected to be like, oh, is it going to be the Philadelphia or Milwaukee that comes out of the East this year? They were supposed most, to be the top two. Most people were picking Philadelphia. Like yeah. most outlets Pl- were picking Philly. Yeah, plenty of people were. So they're they're sixth right now. They are justifiably sixth based on how they played. Um, I wouldn't say they're better than the teams in front of them. Um, except maybe Indiana, but then Indiana goes out and torches them. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, what, what do you do with that? You just say, hey, that's, that's where they are. That's where they deserve to be. 
and uh, we've, we've discussed, you know, some of the things that are, are frustrating about uh, the team in these first, these past few games where, you know, their, their defense is getting beat repeatedly. They're, you know, having guys go into the lane on pick and rolls and clog everything up. And we, we mentioned, we think they're, you know, easily correctable things. If you just, you know, pull a guy and set him aside, or, you know, if it's a scheme issue that has to be changed. Um, so I don't know. It's, I, I like Brett, but at a certain point, you just have to look at the product on the court and, you know, maybe it is time for a change. So uh, it's been a long time coming for me. I was never, I've always been what people would deem a Brett Brown apologist, but you know, if they lose in the first round, he's without question, he's gone. He'll be gone the next day. If it's a second round exit where it's really close, like the Toronto series was last year, and maybe they lose to Milwaukee in a game seven, I could see given the circumstances of, Hey, it was a pandemic and we were playing in a bubble and this was an unprecedented situation. Maybe he comes back, but it it really looks like the writing's on the wall for him at this point. Yeah. So I think the Sixers might hold up that standard of conference finals or we need to fire him. I personally wouldn't say an arbitrary thing like that. Not that, not saying that I don't think they should re- shouldn't replace him. I, I think I am leaning towards like Brett Brown probably needs to go, but I probably wouldn't hold it up to just like the results based kind of thing. And there are some things that Brett aren't Brett's fault, but he can't change. Like Josh Richardson, not shooting well, not handling the ball well enough and not being quick or strong enough for point guard defense. Like Josh Richardson becoming one of the worst starters in the league. I don't think that's his fault in any way. Like, you know what I'm saying? There's some things where it's like, you know, we're just taking our anger out on Brett where do we want to like scream at Jay Rich? Hey, can you do this better? Or, other things like if Ben like Brett tried to force Ben to shoot we heard it all year like and Ben just wouldn't do it even though it's clear it could help so I mean there are there are some things but then I already talked at length about the defense and what the problems I have with the philosophy on offense too like they get into their set so slowly and that's something hard to tell if it's just the players but you would love to see more urgency when they're on offense but it feels like you know like we have the ball back, just hold still, wait for something. Like, you know, they never get into stuff like that. And, I mean, I think this whole Brett Brown, like, Sixers, kind of like back and forth tension about will he keep his job or not, all started in that 2018 series against the Celtics two years ago where Brad Stevens just completely undressed him that whole round where it was like, oh, this is what, like, an excellent coach looks like. Yeah, there's that – school of thought that there's a handful of really good coaches and a handful of really bad coaches and then there's everyone else is just kind of in the middle um probably in that range yeah it's pretty clear at this point brett's one of those in the middle guys so if you're at a point where things have stagnated and guys aren't really buying in which it doesn't seem like they're buying in as far as their effort has looked really uneven and stuff like lazy passes when that is happening that's that's kind of a sign of not buying in um yeah to to speak to a couple of things you mentioned uh regarding Josh Richardson Brett can't do like he can't help that Josh is missing shots or that Josh is suddenly not playing defense well but the the whole point Josh thing it was great when he tried it in November, like, Hey, let's see what happens if it works. But at this point we have enough of a body of evidence that he can't be a primary ball handler. And yet in these seeding games where we're trying to like lock down what the rotations are going to be and what this team's going to look like for the playoffs, he has uh, Josh out there as the primary ball handler Mm -hmm. um, for, for a pretty significant portion of the game. Like that, that's a coaching thing. And that, uh, you know, we're, less than it's crazy to think we're less than two weeks from away from the playoffs like that shouldn't be happening right now and yeah Josh is making terrible passes and you'd expect him to be able to make a a normal pass that an NBA player should make but why is he the guy making those passes it should be a guy that is your primary ball handler um so yeah stuff like that falls to to Brett and but I, I will give him a little bit of uh, leeway regarding what you said about the offense getting into their sets slowly. I think some of that is just Joel Embiid being the centerpiece of the team 
Fair. And he's not he's not a guy that's getting up court quickly and he needs to a few seconds to kind of work himself into like a solid post position and battle his way against the defender. So I do think some of it is that um, with that re- in that regard. But um, yeah, there's I mean, there's plenty of things you can point to and say mm-hmm. Brett could be doing a better job for sure. I really hope Josh Richardson does not listen to this podcast. He he will. I mean, we'd immediately get blocked on Twitter. <laughs> and I like Josh a lot. And <laughs> yeah. I I was a guy that when they made the trade, I, I, yeah, I, was I, I thought Josh would give him the team 80% of what Jimmy gave, and he was on a much better contract. And I was like, this was great. Elton made a great deal. Um, but it just hasn't worked out. And maybe it's just he can't be like the fourth guy, and he needs to be on a team where he can be the second or third guy. Um, but yeah, it's... It, it hasn't worked out here in Philadelphia for him. One thing, like the one big counter argument to like keeping like what the problem, the problems of just getting rid of Brett is who are you getting? Who's better? Like the name everyone probably throw out there right away is Kenny Atkinson. I, I view Kenny Atkinson, even though I like him, he's in that same Brett Brown role of he should be a coach. Just like I think Brett would should probably get another chance at another job in the NBA. If the Sixers fire him, but they were both more of those youth development guys, like keep everyone happy, be a good soldier, like for the franchise, like have to take the lumps. And they can do some good things to raise like poor teams up to competence, but I don't think they can take like really good teams into contenders. So that's not the name I would look for. One name, like as an assistant coach would be interesting is Darvin Ham, I believe is on Mike Budenholzer's staff and just everyone from that Budenholzer and therefore, like, Popovich tree. But, like, because the Grizzlies this year, even though they've been really bad in the restart, took off under Taylor Jenkins after he was hired away from the Milwaukee staff, just kind of bringing in one of those guys who might instill a Budenholzer-like philosophy into the Sixers might help. And, of course, the other candidate would be Ime Adoka for the Sixers. He's already their assistant and has been a very highly sought-after assistant by some other teams. Yeah, I knew Doka would kind of – provide continuity and that Spurs pipeline type it, thing. It's, and you'd immediately think the Nick Nurse kind of hire. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say I know mm-hmm. what assistant coaches are going to bring to the table. I think it's kind of impossible to separate, you know, what individual members of coaching staffs are doing and what they're contributing. And not only amongst the coaches themselves, but also it, ultimately it goes to the players to have to kind of perform. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we'll see where they go if, if Brett is let go at some point. But, um, yeah, I was a guy that thought Brett should get a chance with a real roster. And I think at this point he's had a few years with a real roster and he had his chance. And, you know, we'll see how the rest of the season plays out. But I don't think it would be unfair if he was let go. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Hopefully they start playing a little better and that won't be a uh, conversation we need to have. Just don't hire Jason Kidd. Just <laughs> play him. Or, or what I can imagine, say like the Bulls got rid of Jim Boylan and the Sixers for some idiotic reason tried to hire him. Like Joel at, might actually slap him. Like that, I could definitely see that happening. Joel is not punching in the clock when he comes to the Wells Fargo Center. <laughs> oh man! Uh, well, we talked some. We've been talking a lot about these other teams the Sixers are going to have to compete with. So, just what do you feel? What do you like? This is what we're going to close on here today. What do you have? You thought about the five teams that are currently ahead of the Sixers in the standings out in the East? Uh, I don't know if there's a team, a specific team you want to start with. Uh, there, there's not a specific team. I mean, we can speak to each of them but Hmm. my overall feeling is just everyone kind of looks pretty good aside from the Sixers yeah (laughs) and it's just a little discouraging because not only have they been playing really poorly but everyone else has been kind of firing at all cylinders a little bit I mean you look at Toronto they came out in their first game and clocked LA Mm -hmm. uh, beating the Lakers by 15 and then they got a really nice win against Miami and then beat Orlando. So they, they looked, they, they've looked but, like real contenders now. This is, a, this is a tangent to the West, but the Lakers might, there's might be something wrong with the Lakers. Like, I don't know if you saw some of that game against the Thunder last night. Like they just cannot like shoot at all right now, which I mean, shooting's highly variable. So they could definitely think, Oh, we're just having a poor shooting streak. So we're going to be fine. But you know, 
that, so that's just like kind of a point there. I was just thinking of that when you mentioned the Lakers. Yeah, I mean, Danny Green will eventually hit a shot. So yeah. it's, they, they're, they're not going to be as in, as in as much trouble as they looked against the Thunder. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't be overly concerned if I was a Lakers fan. Um, and, and, you know, rot- rotations will tighten. So there won't be as much Dion Waiters in the playoffs <laughs> as we've seen. Um, but yeah, just, uh, and then getting back to the East, another team that's really looked good is Miami where we talked last week in our podcast about how tough their schedule was, but then they've gone out and they beat Denver by 20. Um, They lost a really close game to Toronto, who we just talked about has been playing really well, so you can't fault Miami too much there. And then they went out and beat Boston without Jimmy Butler. So they're already 2-1, and and when we were talking last week, we are like, oh, it wouldn't be surprising if they went 2-6 and even, given how tough the schedule was, Mm -hmm. but they've already got two wins. Um, they're only two games back of Boston, um, yeah. which, you know, I don't expect them to pass Boston because they do still have that tough schedule and, you know, Boston has looked okay themselves. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, Miami's looking great. Indiana is three and O and they beat the Sixers of course. And TJ Warren looks like he can't, he's shooting into he's the ocean 30, basically. 39.7 points per game. If you take it in the second game, he went one of six from three. But if you take that out, the first and third game of the bubble restart, he is 13 of 17 from three, which is just bonkers. And with the Pacers, I I just wanted to touch on this. Are we sure they aren't just better without Sabonis? Because they kind of run a more egalitarian offense instead of just constant pick and rolls and post-ups with him. And kind of this five spread, having the paint open, you know, Miles Turner is seven of nine from three. He spaces the floor like crazy. So I don't know if this is kind of just like it's the same thing like with the Spurs, where they've seen a little better about Lamarcus. Like, is not having the plotting big man who's the focus of your offense kind of helping those teams? With them, I think it's more just only having one of Sabonis or Turner. Mm-hmm. I think if if it wasn't Turner in there and it was Sabonis and he was kind of working as that hub around the circle, like foul line area, uh, they would still be seeing similar success. I just think him and Sabonis and Turner together is, is just not a good combination. And they've tried to make it work because they're both well, young actually, and talented. I think they've done pretty well in the minutes with them on the court together. My, I mean, I kind of think they actually might just be better because I don't think it's good when your offense has to go through Sabonis because he's not really doing anything off ball except maybe offensive rebounding. Whereas you can tell Miles, hey, just spot up from three and then on defense be the awesome rim protector you are. And that open, completely opens up the paint for a guy like Warren to curl off those screens and just attack. You know, you know what I'm saying Like with that? Yeah, they can go more five out for mm-hmm. sure. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, that's interesting. I'm not going to say of. I've I, I dived into Indiana <laughs> roster construction too too closely. Um, but yeah, they've certainly looked great these last three games. And with, uh, you know, Oladipo has, he rested against uh, Washington. But aside from that, he's played in two of the three games. And th- that was a question mark before mm-hmm. the, the bubble play started. Like, was he even going to participate? So now you have, you know, their former all-star playing, and uh, a guy like T.J. Warren playing like an all-star. Um, so suddenly they're they're kind of a frisky team, and they were just somebody that we were, you know, tossing aside a week mm-hmm. ago. So you got you got them. You got Miami and Toronto both playing really well. Boston's looked fine. Um, I wouldn't say they've – I think they're kind of where we thought they were. And yeah. then uh, Milwaukee is who they are, who, you know, despite losing to the Nets um, in their last game – you know, Giannis and Middleton sat in the second half, and I just don't think the Bucks were up for that game at all. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I, I wouldn't knock the Bucks too much for what they've done in the bubble. I think they're the same team. So, with everyone, everyone either looks has to be expected or better, except for the Sixers, is basically what it boils down to in my mind. I have opinions. I have strong opinions in all three TJs on the Pacers because TJ Warren right now looks like a demigod. I love TJ McConnell. He is the background on my Twitter profile. We'll always love him. TJ Leaf might be the worst rotation player in the league. And I don't know if it's particularly close. 
Like, I think, didn't you tweet out, like, he was the four, the Sixers' fourth best player that night? I did, yeah. He was so bad. And and then we gave up a dunk to him, which was just demeaning. But Yeah, but he, he was awful defensively, and then he kept, he kept shooting, like, these oh. long jumpers. And it's just like, TJ Leaf, what are you doing? How could like, you not play anyone else? Like, Jakar Sampson at center was much more terrifying, like... Just, yeah, I know. I know they were depleted in the front court because they had you know a couple injuries and everything. But uh, like, yeah. I, I kind of liked Leaf at UCLA. Like, and I remember him being a better athlete than that. He just looked like he couldn't do anything right. It was so bad. Um, um, I mean that was so. But that's probably enough Pacers talk. Uh, as for the Heat and the Celtics, I. I mean, the Heat. You're right. Do look good. I m- might be changing my opinion from last week that. It might be better for the Sixers to try and take the Celtics on first round than the Heat. Um, also, I have to address with the Heat, our colleague, our friend, David Early, has been mocking me for saying last pod that Duncan Robinson is one of the best shooters I've ever seen. I probably should have said having one of the best shooting seasons I've ever seen, which is definitely true. And, I mean, he's 9 of 22 from the, in the restart so far from three, which is 41%. But you take out the one of four against the Toronto – against Toronto where they were basically swarming him and he's eight of 18. So, you know, but no, it's just with Miami. It's, they have so many guys who in that roster where I'm like, man, I like, like him, hero, Olenek, Iguodala, Crowder. Like I wouldn't want to leave any of those guys open from three that much. So that's a bit of a problem. Although if we're talking about the Sixers taking away threes and having trouble stopping stuff at the rim, the heat are only 24th and at rim attempt percentage. My, rather play Boston in the first round take looks oh I'm, I feel much more confident about that a week yep. later for sure and yeah Miami just doesn't ha- they don't have any holes and they don't have anywhere their, you their can- defense can be a little shaky I mean they usually just switch to zone against the Sixers and completely throw them off but like against most teams Miami struggles a little bit on defense because outside of Butler and uh Butler and Bam they don't really have any plus great like on-ball stoppers similar to the Sixers where like Kendrick Nunn and Tyler Hero basically can just let guys go right past them to the lane that becomes a bit of a problem but yeah I know what you're saying I'm more meant that yeah offensively when Miami's on offense there's just no one you can really kind of not worry about oh yeah everyone brings something to the table and then defensively yeah they do have some guys that aren't great defenders but they can just when they're playing sixers they can just you know put them on matisse or yeah or whatever and just say like hey just don't let this guy shoot an open three and i mean i'm i'm pretty sure in the playoffs teams are just not going to guard matisse at all like yeah because teams that's the thing is that we've drifted more towards like if you are not like a pretty good shooter teams will just absolutely disrespect you in the playoffs because they it's like, you're just like, if this guy is not good at what he does, I am not going to care about it. It was like thing like, it's what killed the Blazers those every year was that teams completely disrespected Aminu and Harkless and would just hang in the paint the whole time. Right. Because even if a guy's open, you're going into a playoff game. And if you're, if you're Portland, like to use our example from a few years ago, they're not going to say, hey, we're going to have Amino shoot 10 threes this game. Like that's... Yeah. That's people, not what they want to do. Yeah, the so other, even if he's open. Yeah, the other the other team's thinking, you know, if Aminu goes seven of ten on threes and beats us that way, so be it. Like we'll live with that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, uh, I don't feel great about a potential Miami matchup. Um, I mean, I, don't know, I think I don't know if I feel great about any matchup, Sean. I, I don't feel great about the Sixers. Is <laughs> it's kind of what it, in a nutshell what what this uh, I, the tagline for this podcast could be. I really don't feel good about the next set of games because the Magic are always a pain in the butt to the Sixers. The Suns are one of the most fun teams to watch in the bubble to me. I think the Suns have just been awesome to watch. Yeah, Devin Booker had that uh-huh. huge shot um, against LA to win. I'm- I'm getting Landry Shamit syndrome though when watching Mikhail Bridges again, realizing he was in our hands. We had him. He was a perfect fit. And now he does cool stuff for the Suns instead of us. Yeah. His mom's an employee and we drafted him. <laughs> it's, and, and yeah, just the fact that Zaire has, you know, reached a point where 
he's not we, even on. He's basically not even thought of as on the team. And then we almost, yeah, we almost, we almost accidentally killed the guy who we traded yeah. him for, and then used the pick to trade for Tobias Harris, but without not without giving up other assets. Ugh. The, you I mean, still gonna rabbit hole with this stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you if you really like Mikel Bridges a lot, then maybe you just like feel fortunate that he didn't come to Philadelphia and be subjected <laughs> to the Sixers rookie curse. That yeah. if you love something, set him free. Fair uh, point, Sean. Fair point. Exactly. So, yeah, uh, rough week to be a Sixers fan. Which is it's crazy. They're two and one in these games. Like it, just, it feels like zero and twelve. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I, I feel I feel like I haven't watched a good forty eight minutes of basketball um in 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 years. And you knew uh, it was gonna happen as soon as the scrimmages ended, because the scrimmages have been kind of fun and encouraging, but as soon as the game started mattering again, we had like those first three minutes against the Pacers where it was okay, then everything fell to crap. Yeah. Well the game they won in the scrimmages uh was the forty minute game. So you're like, oh, that was a weird game to begin with. It wasn't even the full length of an NBA game. And then they they blew the second game, and then they didn't look particularly good against Dallas. So, yeah, it's it's uh, tough times, I, I would say, for, for Sixers Nation here. Tough times indeed. Well, we're already over an hour here, so I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, me and Sean, I'll see you next week. All right, talking about podcast week three. Looking forward to maybe having a little more optimism around this team. More optimism would be nice. All right, see you, John. Bye. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.